everybody. My name's Mark. If you don't know who I am, many of you will know me well. Some of you will never have met me. If you're a guest here this morning, I just want to say you're, you're jumping into a family conversation that we started some weeks ago. The subject of which, the focus of which really is, what does it mean for us to flourish as human beings created in the image and likeness of God. So I want you to feel very much at home. I hope that I say some things that are interesting to you, as well as to the church family. As part of this series, in this particular part of the series, we've started to focus in on relationships. Because being created in the image and likeness of God means that we were, all, every single one of us, created for relationships. And as a result, we are looking at sexuality. What does it mean for those of us who are single and those of us who are married? And today I'm going to talk to you about culture. The culture around us and the way in which that has impacted the way in which the world thinks, those who don't follow Jesus, and also impacted perhaps the way that we as Jesus followers have sought to think. It's not my goal today to tell you what to believe from a platform. My goal today is to encourage us as a church family to continue a conversation around a table. Perhaps what I might end up doing is giving you some lenses, some ways of looking at some of these things in a way that might allow you to evaluate why you believe what you believe. Your position, as Sarah talked to us last week. Perhaps looking through these lenses might also cause us to adjust our posture, which is the way we handle our position. In 1 Chronicles 12, verse 32, the Bible talks about this tribe called Issachar. And it says of Issachar that they did two things really well. It says they understood the times in which they lived and they understood what Israel should do. So today I'm going to talk about two things. How well do we understand the times in which we live? And in response to those, what do we think we ought to do? It's said that the church, us as Jesus' followers, shouldn't live in reaction to culture, what's going on around us. It said we shouldn't be led by it either. I think two of those two things are true to some extent. But I do believe as Jesus followers that we are all called to contextualize our faith. Every generation of the church has had to do that. It's, ha it's had to figure out how to explain what it believes and how to apply what it believes to the needs, the beliefs, and the behaviors of the people around them, some of whom follow Jesus and some of whom don't. I might just say at this point that contextualizing our faith does not mean telling anybody else what to do. Although I think after 2,000 years, the church has become quite good at that in some ways. As we'll see, contextualizing our faith in the context of sexuality has proved to be a really interesting journey over the last 50 years, which is actually, if you add 10%, my entire life. You do the maths. 
So in understanding the times, I'm going to talk to us about four things. What's culture been doing? What's this country been doing? What have the courts been doing? And what has the church in general been doing? And then I'm going to finish with just some reflections on how we might figure out, as a church family, what we might do. Over the last 400 years, there have been three major cultural shifts. The first was called the Enlightenment. The second was called Modernism. And then, really clever bit of naming convention, the following one's called Postmodernism. Great marketing budget spent on that one. It's the bit that comes after modernism. Those of you who studied history and culture, you professionals out there, you're going to think I'm making this really simple, because I am. Because it's the only way I understand anything. So forgive me for my simplicity, but hopefully it will be memorable. The Enlightenment, the movement, the Enlightenment movement shifted culture away from the superstitious and the supernatural towards science and reason. So there was this great shift in the late 17th and into the 19th century of it can, if it, it needs to be able to be understood. Science is what matters, not the supernatural and superstition. Modernism came along and said this. Modernism said to the church, there are no rules based on your religious beliefs. And modernism then said to the Enlightenment, there are no rules based on science. In fact, we all get to do what we want. Innovate, explore, experiment. And then postmodernism came along and said, you know all that experimentation that you were doing? Everybody's truth claim is valid. So everybody gets to decide what is true. This process leads us to where we are today, to what many people call the post Christian age. Post-Christian age meaning that secularism as a process has taken us to a place where the country, where society, where culture has moved away from aligning itself to religion, to the church and what the church believes is true, and aligned itself more to secular institutions, institutions that don't believe in God or put God at the heart of anything they do. The post-Christian age, which is where many people feel we are today, leaves us in this position. There is no God. There is no such thing as truth. I get to choose who I am and what I do. I get to decide what is right and wrong. And I get to choose what I believe. Now we might think that's all bad. But actually there have been some significant improvements to the world that have taken place throughout that period. Firstly, improvements in science. The church had to be persuaded that the universe doesn't revolve around the earth and kind of wanted to lock people up and kill people who thought that wasn't true. The church shifted in response to culture because it realized, no, the universe doesn't revolve around the earth anymore. So science helped to shape the church. And then in the same period, we as our, in our humanity have decided that slavery was a bad thing. 
Shall we shifted culture? The church shifted its position, culture shifted its position on slavery. And then more recently, the rights of women and the role of women have shifted considerably through this period. So whilst as Christians, as Jesus followers, we might think all of this enlightenment, postmodernism, stuff, and secularism is all bad news, the confusing thing is in some ways there's been significant improvements. But I'd like to apply a lens that Bill Johnson created for this process, which I think is really helpful to us as Jesus followers. Bill Johnson said this, if you remove the creator then you take away design. If you take away design, then there is no purpose. And if there is no purpose, there is no accountability. And if there is no accountability, there is no fear of God. And where there is no fear of God, there is no wisdom. And where there is no wisdom, there is confusion. So in many ways, we might say that this post-Christian age in which we find ourselves has delivered some really great things, but in many ways has left us very confused. Very confused in all sorts of areas. So what's the country been doing? Well, some will say the country's becoming less Christian. Other people would say it's becoming more Christ-like. Now, there's a dualism you could hold for a while and have a think about, okay? David Cameron, in his 2015 Christmas dress, called us a Christian country just before he gifted us Brexit. Thank you, David. (laughs) Calling us a Christian country provoked a huge amount of debate in this country about the extent to which we are a Christian country. Rowan Williams, who I always want to call Atkinson because I think it's much funnier, Rowan Williams, former Archbishop of Canterbury, in speaking about this issue, basically said... Britain's cultural memory is quite Christian, but it's post-Christian in the sense that most of its practices are not Christian. He said, we're not a nation of secularists, but neither are we a nation of committed believers. We are not a Christian country in the sense of us being a nation of believers. But we are a Christian country, he said, in the sense that we are still very much shaped by Christian values. But I wonder if that's true. In 2010, a couple called Mr. and Mrs. Johns were looking to adopt. And in the process, they were challenged about their stance on homosexuality. And when they advocated their position that if their prospective adoptive son decided he was gay and how they would respond to it, they were refused the right to adopt. They appealed to the high court on the basis this was discrimination against their Christian faith, and they lost. In the same year, a guy called Mr. McFarlane, who was working for Relate, counseling organization, refused to give sexual counseling to a gay couple. He was sacked. He appealed to the high court for discrimination against his Christian faith, and he lost. In those cases, both courts, high courts said... We sit as secular judges, not to promote or protect Christianity, but to protect the rights of increasingly pluralistic, multicultural society. So it's interesting to see that the courts themselves do not see themselves 
as running a Christian country. Quite the opposite in some ways. They're running a country for all. And as a result, what the courts has been up to over the last 50 years is really, really fascinating, particularly in the area of sexuality. So I don't know if there's a, there's probably another slide coming now with a long list of acts, which I'm not going to read out to you. But it would be worth noting that until 1967, homosexuality was a criminal offence. And it was criminalised in 1533 by the Buggery Act, which at the point it was enacted made homosexuality a capital offence. In other words, you would be executed. It was updated by the Offences Against the Person Act in 1867, and I think it was 1869. But since 1967, there has been raft after raft after raft of legislation introduced in the area of the LGBT community. Last Sunday, Switzerland voted by referendum on whether to give equal rights to the LGBT community in their country, and they voted in favor of doing so. I think it was last week, or the week before, two women were married in Ireland, the first same-sex marriage, because Ireland was much slower on taking up legislation that said marriage would apply to same-sex as well as heterosexual couples. The UK is currently seventh on the rainbow map. The rainbow map is a lens through which each country is assessed to understand the extent to which it has extended equal rights to the LGBT community. And we're seventh, I think Switzerland was 20, and Malta is number one for some reason. But the legislation changes have not just simply applied to the LGBT community, it's also applied to marriage and divorce. The first Marriage Act was introduced in, 19, in 1694, 1694, before which it was all about hand fasting. It's called hand fasting in the Middle Ages, marriage. And then there was this idea that you'd go to church and it would be blessed by the church. But in 1694, the first Marriage Act was introduced and then century after century, more and more Marriage Acts were introduced. And then more latterly, marriage legislation that affected divorce. What was this all about? This was all about ownership of marriage from the Middle Ages, transitioning away from the courts, from the church to the courts. So marriage eventually has become owned by the court, not by the church. In the same at the same time as this process is unfolding, the sexual revolution basically drives a coach and horses through all of our cultural norms and destigmatizes and demystifies sex outside of marriage. So the courts have been pretty busy. The country has become less Christian or more Christ-like, depending on your point of view. And culture has shifted dramatically over the last 100, but also 50 years. So what's the church been doing? The church as a whole, I believe, has been asking itself five really big questions in this process. 
What is God like? What's our role in the world? Who am I? How should I live? And who gets to tell me who I am and how I should live? Those last three are about identity, morality, and authority. See, the answer to the question, what is God like, is a big deal. Because over here, God is holy, and there are rules. Over here, God is love, and there are no rules. I'm creating what Sarah called last week, lots of false choices for you now, by the way. They're either ors, right? Ditches. What's the church's role in the world? Is it to legislate or is it to love? If the courts are not going to uphold the Christian values reflected in the law of the land, then that's the church's job, surely. So the church takes on this role of lawmaker, lawkeeper. Or actually, is it our role to love? not to legislate. Who am I? Do I get to choose who I am? My sex is biological, but my gender is sociological. The census that's coming up next year, the Scottish government were proposing to put 21 different options for gender onto their, onto their census form. Can I get to choose what my gender is, even though my biology is determined by nature? Does someone else get to define? Do my parents, do my family, do the community, does society get to tell me who I am? How should I live? How should I live? Over here, over here, it's moral standard plus willpower. There are rules. And I've just got to really try hard not to break them. Or over here, if it's consensual and it feels good and it doesn't do anybody else any harm, then surely it's okay. Who or what gets to tell me what to do? The cultural movements of the last 400 years have left us with this idea that there is no supreme authority, so surely no one gets to tell me what to do. Over here, the Bible becomes the rule book. The thing that I get to beat myself up with or beat other people up with when they don't keep the rules. The Bible is clear. Over here, the Bible is clearly out of date and needs updating. It was written a long time ago and has nothing to say to us now because we have moved on. I hope you're trying to figure out where I am. But I also want you to think about where you are. Because this is all about position. Where do I find myself on these false choices? And if you feel a bit disorientated, that's okay. I'm with you. 
I didn't intend to give you any answers today. I'm just going to give you a lot of questions. So how do we, what do we do? Heaven help us, Mark, you've just kind of stirred up this big pot of confusion of like, I have no idea what's going on anymore. What do we do? Well, I think there are two things that we could do well to spend our time figuring out together. And this does not get figured out from a platform. This gets figured out from a table. But we can say some things on the platform that might help. We can also say some things that might not help. Forgive me if I do that. Because that's not my intention. There are two things, I think. Firstly, what does a more Christ-like response to all of this look like and sound like? And the great news about that is we have a wonderful lens onto Jesus through four people who wrote books about him. And there's four because you want to see him from different perspectives. So we have some pretty good ideas about what a more Christ-like response would look like. And then what is a vision for Christian sexuality and Christian formation look like? The Cultural Revolution and the Sexual Revolution which followed it declared anything goes as long as consent is given, it feels right and no one gets hurt. Together, these revolutions consigned the creator of sex to the role of spoil sport. He's a spoil sport. And put his design for sex in the bin. This has left us oversexed and confused. At the same time, the church's traditional approach to this subject, which is the Bible is clear and there are standards and you just need to try really hard. How's that working out for you? Failure almost all the time. This failure leads to shame, particularly when the church decides that its role is to act as moral disinfectant as opposed to making disciples. And now we're talking about posture. Because is my posture towards this world that I need to morally disinfect it? Or is it I should be looking at myself and thinking, how do I follow Jesus more faithfully and become more like him so that my sexual ethics flow from my spiritual formation rather than from a rule book. This means I don't have to try so hard anymore. A more Christ-like response brings grace into, tr into dialogue with truth. It brings compassion, as Sarah so brilliantly shared last week, compassion into dialogue with conviction, and brings the experiences of us all into dialogue with my prejudice, which is called my theology. We just use a different word for it. A more Christ-like response has us eating together, not just meeting together, because we need 
more than anything else to be able to make this stuff stuff we can talk about. As we heard last week, the extent to which we are unable to talk about these things is a matter for some of us of life and death. And my favourite friend for the moment, Mr Rogers, if you've not seen A Beautiful Day in the Neighbourhood, go and see it. He says, anything human is mentionable, and anything mentionable is manageable. So we should talk about stuff. We should talk about stuff. And that's what this series is all about. As I personally figure out how to respond to what I've just told you in the last 25 minutes, because I'm hearing this as well as you, how do I figure out how to contextualize my faith? What I absolutely know without any shadow of a doubt, that is what I want to be famous for, is not being right. What I want to be famous for is love. I hope you'll feel better now. My goal is not to be right. I don't give a... about whether I'm right or not in the end. Gosh, I nearly slipped then. (laughs) Um, I want to be famous for love. Now, what does that mean? We need to figure that out. Because being famous for love doesn't mean I I don't have a position. But it means I've figured out how to steward that position through my posture. My posture always is love. It's fascinating to me that Jesus spent most of his time around a table with lots of people that the church would question the morality of. And yet none of them found that a difficult experience. I think they loved hanging out with Jesus. So whatever his position, his posture meant they wanted to come and talk to him, not get away from him. So I think Jesus is the personification of mercy trying over, triumphing over judgment. Otherwise they wouldn't want to be with him, would they? Seems to me anyway. And finally, what does a vision for Christian sexuality and formation look like? I don't have the answers to that question, but I think we do. And we could have. If we were brave enough and willing enough to keep the conversation going. But let me just throw some stuff into this casserole pot and then leg it. (laughs) We've got a car waiting outside. The engine's running. A vision for Christian sexuality and formation understands that sex is good. I went on television once with Lucy Peacock Peacock and um, what was he called? I went on a documentary with these very strange people and I was a token Christian. And I went on there, and they were all talking nonsense. And I just went, sex is great. I thought, that's going to be a soundbite. Good job there wasn't Twitter in those days. Um, Sex is good. Sex is powerful. But it's also really fragile. A vision for Christian sexuality and formation understands that romantic relationships, marriage, and sex are not essential for us to flourish as human beings. And we should honor and support and celebrate singleness as much as we celebrate marriage. A vision for Christian sexuality and formation focuses on our spiritual formation. I'm talking to Jesus followers now. 
it focuses on our spiritual formation, who we are becoming, not our sexual ethics. What are we allowed to get up to or not? It's the wrong focus. My focus is to become like him. My ethics kind of get pulled along. A vision for Christian sexuality and formation includes an appreciation that sexual sin impacts our spiritual formation because it does something to the image and likeness of God that's in us. Paul hints at this in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12 to 20. I don't understand all that it means, but I do know that in Paul's mind it's significant. And I'm not suggesting that some sins are less forgivable than others, but the impact of sin varies. There's something about sexual sin that our, that our Christian sexuality and formation needs to take into account. It also requires us to interpret Scripture. We can't, well, we could. I can't tell you what to do. I just did probably. Forgive me for that. But I personally struggle with the idea of just putting the Bible to one side because it's inconvenient. I think Christian sexuality and formation requires me to, to, to handle the Bible really, really well and carefully. Not just asking myself the question, what does it say? But asking myself the question, what does it mean? And we're going to do more of that in the weeks ahead. Sarah's going to continue the series and we're going to go into the Bible together and we're going to look at some of the verses that create real challenges for us in many ways in this area. We must be as faithful as possible to Scripture. A vision for Christian sexuality and formation does require us, whether we are married or single, heterosexual or same-sexually attracted, or even self-sexual behavior, wherever you are, wherever you are, Christian sexuality and formation requires us all, invites us all to embrace self-control and the person and power of the Holy Spirit. Because without him, we'll never be able to keep all the rules. Never mind the sexual ones. It's hard enough keeping the ones about not getting angry. Or being generous. What makes us think we can attain to the stature of Christ in our sexual sexuality if we're not embracing both the discipline but also the delight of the personal power and Holy Spirit in our lives? And then finally, a vision for Christian sexuality and formation recognizes four things. Sex points to a greater reality. Our desire as humans to be fully known and reflects something of the mystery of God. Sex is intended to be expressed in the context of holistic intimacy. It's not just about technique. The entire world seems to focus on technique. How do you do it better? Then we are talking about position, aren't we? Christian sexuality and formation focuses on the context. And the context is intimacy. Sex offers us the opportunity for transformation, both in the act and the abstinence. 
Something transformative happens when you have sex and something transformative can happen when you don't, whether you are married or single. Married couples can choose not to, and that can be transformational. And when they choose to, it's also transformational. Single people can do the same. Irrespective of our status, we all share these challenges. And then last, but definitely not least, our sexual formation as a Jesus-following community is an incredible witness to the world. It offers the world the opportunity to see what life lived in obedience and submission to Jesus looks like in the realm of sexuality. And I think it's fair to say that as a church, and I mean generally, but therefore we're in it too, we haven't done a brilliant job of that. What would it look like? And that's why I think this series is such a brilliant opportunity for us. It gives us a unique opportunity as a church family to have some conversations and say some things that, quite frankly, we wouldn't expect to have said. I just did that. Modeling something for you there. It's a brilliant opportunity to have a conversation. So what's the call to action? The call to action is listen to Sarah's talk from last week. (laughs) If you've heard it, Listen to it again. If you've not heard it, it is an absolutely brilliant, brilliant invitation for us to focus on our posture and not just our position. And whether or not we think our position is becoming less Christian or not, what would it look like for our posture to become increasingly Christ-like? And maybe we can have both and... You thought I was going to get away without saying it? I said it. Both and. A Christian position, but a Christ-like posture. So I'm not saying that lightly. Please do keep listening to Sarah's talk from last week over and over and over again. And as this series continues, keep listening to it. Because whatever we decide our position is, wherever we end up, and we don't all have to agree on that, that's not the goal either. The one thing that could and should unite us is our posture, and our posture is to become increasingly Christ-like in the way that we steward our understanding and steward each other's experience and struggles in the context of this subject. Wow. I'm going to just pray for us all. Is that okay? Great. Jesus, I thank you so much that you are with us on this journey. And wherever any of us find ourselves on this journey, whether we're in this room and we are following you, whether we're in this room and we are not following you, Jesus, I thank you that you know us intimately and you are with us on this journey. And I pray for every single one of us that we as a church family and those who are guests today would find it possible to continue a conversation that makes it okay to talk about anything and everything because anything human is mentionable and anything mentionable is manageable. God help us 
to keep this conversation going. And as much as we continue to figure out our position, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would empower us to adopt a posture that is increasingly Christ-like. I ask you to do this, God, in the wonderful, beautiful, powerful name of Jesus. Amen. I'm going to pray in just a second to close out. I um, over the last few weeks, as um, Sarah's <clears throat> kind of set this whole season that we're moving into, and even Mark this morning, I'm I'm conscious I've had conversations with numerous of you, been like, "Well, you know, what is our position? What do we think? What are we? Where are we going?" <laughs> I'm like, "Oh, okay. Like, I, I understand the urgency to kind of nail some of this stuff. But, um, I've likened it over the last week to thinking about it like this: when I bake a cake." Uh, I usually don't read the menu, uh, don't read the recipe. It's not a menu. Tell me, times I bake cakes. I don't read the recipe. I guesstimate and I throw things in a bowl. And more often than not, what comes out of the oven is tastes terrible and is the wrong. It does. It's not a cake. And so I think the preparation and the space that we're creating just to um, just acknowledge that actually we're pulling together some ingredients. You know what Sarah talked about last week and in this whole area of looking at you know the, the context of our position but ultimately our, our posture and looking at some of the, the questions that we get pulled into that are just not questions that we need to answer and we have to live in the tension of them. What Mark is again helping us orientate around this morning um, is really like pulling these ingredients together. So I would encourage you, um, if you haven't been around for the last little while, go back and listen to Sarah's last two talks. Listen again to what Mark said. Because as we move into what we're going to be diving into over the next couple of months, it requires us to have that in, those ingredients ready and in the mix. Because if they're not, if we don't have in the mix the love of God and the nature of who he is, then actually what we're going to get at the end of it is going to taste pretty bad. It's going to taste pretty bad to us, our community, and it's certainly going to taste bad to the world around us. So if we can kind of consider just this journey we're on and what we're getting ready and what we're pulling together in terms of ingredients, then I know that it will hold us in good stead as we move forward. Is that all right? All right, why don't you stand? I want to pray for you.